Welcome to the Bermagui Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Here you'll find the recording of messages from our weekly gatherings. We pray you'll be challenged and encouraged by today's message. Well, to get things started, I wanted to I guess, start with a story, a little bit more about my life, my background. Um, you know, I was, I'm one of those blessed kids where I was raised in a loving family, our parents that loved each other and loved us. Um, you know, we were well looked after, part of a loving church, you know, had, had amazing family and friends around us and just an amazing community to, to, to grow up in. Um, but at the same time, I think that made me and shaped me to, to be a kid that, you know, definitely saw the rosy side of life and um, saw the best in people. And in turn, I think that may maybe it's one of those, you know, in a sense, almost one of those over-trusting kids. And you can almost say a bit gullible. Because I did, you know, generally believe that people were generally good. But I can still remember there was one of these defining moments as a young kid where I realized that, well, not everyone is necessarily like that. That people make choices that aren't necessarily good. That people aren't necessarily always trustworthy. And for me, it was one of those moments where you know, I, was, I was a young boy in that, that sort of stage of life where you know, we had a secret crush, but it wouldn't be something that we'd necessarily talk about. You know, it would be too embarrassing or you just, you know, it just wasn't necessarily discussed, but it was there. And um, me and one of my mates, I guess you'd say, it was, it was one of the kids I sat with regularly on the bus. The topic came up and we started talking about it a little bit. And um, neither of us would sort of give in to, to share who our secret crush was. And so he goes, okay, here's what we'll do. He says, on the count of three, we'll just say both our crushes at the same time. <laughs> so I go, all right. And me being the over-trusting, gullible kid... I was like, yeah, I can do that. I'm, I'm, I'm bold enough to do that much. And so one, two, three, and I blurt out, I think it was Victoria, <laughs> one of the girls in my class at the time. But he was silent. And he's like, ah, gotcha, you know, whatever, you know, like, I don't know what he did. But for me, it's one of those really distinct memories in my head of going, what? We made a deal. Now you broke my trust. And it really was one of those, those moments where I just went, wow, you know, like people won't necessarily hold their word. People will break trust. People will not necessarily always be good. And even though it was just, you know, childhood stuff, you know, as time goes on and we're all familiar with it, especially as adults, you know, that, you know not all of humanity is good. There's definitely a darker side to it. There's a, there's a brokenness to humanity. And if you haven't run into that, then, well, goodness, you've, you've, you've run a good course because, you know, I think some of our earliest memories start to form around that. And this concept, this idea of humanity being good, you know, Jesus made quite a bold statement about it. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 17, and I'm reading from the New King James for, for this passage because it just it, it defines it quite well. He's talking to the, the rich young ruler. So if you're familiar with that, that, that scenario, this is how it starts. 
says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good things shall I do that I, that, that I may have eternal life? So he, Jesus, said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And the story goes on from there. But Jesus makes this statement there where he defines what good is. No one is good but one, and that is God. Because in our society, there really is this distortion of truth and this distortion of reality and distortion of our perception of humanity that man that has derived this notion that man is inherently good. And this idea has been around for a long time. They're, they're, they're like when, when, when they go through the, the philosophies of you know, Socrates and Plato, you know, these early great thinkers that, that re- recorded their thoughts, you know, they, they came to this notion that, well, yeah, yeah, there's a darker side of humanity, but there's, there's plenty of good as well. So how about we focus on that? That man is inherently good. And that, that process and that philosophy as such has been around and continued on into, into modern times. And the fact is, I don't think you'll meet anyone that, that thinks, you know, that all of humanity is all good. You know, no, no one's got rose-coloured glasses that thick. You know, everyone knows that there's, there is a, a, a darkness and a, and a brokenness to, to humanity. But on the flip side of that, they would be very quick to, you know, you ask someone, you know, define what is evil, define what is bad. They'd be able to give you examples. They'd say, well, when people do this or when this happens. But on the flip side, they'll be able to go, well, this is what good is. And it shows this you know, dualism or, di- or dichotomy, if you want to call it that, of these two thoughts of going, well, you know, well, this is what we'll define as bad and this is what we'll define as good. And, you know, if we want to try and stay positive, we'd be, be glass half full people, we, we look for the good in people. But this train of thought has a, a very different definition of good to what we see in scriptures there. Because this definition from a humanistic perspective is, you know, whether it's based on action or motive or anything, but it's based on, you know, well, you know, maybe, maybe something good is something that, that brings something positive to, to others. Or maybe something good is something that doesn't bring harm to others. But the problem is this, this type of reasoning, you know, you start to enter into you know, ethical debates and ethical dilemmas, don't you? And this notion of, you know, well, you know, if something is you know, of, of a majority benefit, but negative to some, then is it still good? You know, it brings, brings these debates into the, the realm of, you know, does the end justify the means? That sort of thing. That's the problem with this, with this humanistic perspective of what good is. Because there's always this connection to what is evil or bad. But if we go by the definition that Jesus set, you can say a standard that Jesus set, that no one, no one is good but God. It's pretty clear cut, isn't it? There's, there's, there's not a lot of room at all for, for circular thinking or for, for ethical debate or dilemma there, is there? It's sort of saying, well, sorry, no, we all miss it. No one, no one meets that standard of good. That is God. 
And the God that Jesus is talking about is the God of the Christian Bible that we believe, you know, the God that is perfect. The God is all powerful, all knowing, the immutable God, the unchanging God. That is the God and he alone is good. That's the standard. That's the benchmark. So it begs the question, okay? So if that's going to be our benchmark, okay? If we're not going to get caught into the humanistic realm of of defining what good is, if we're going to go, yep, okay, Chris, I agree. That's the definition of good. What does that mean about us? What does that say about us? Isaiah 64 paints it this way. Pretty, Pretty descriptive language here. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. So even the good things we do, the the righteous things we can do, in the light of perfection, are nothing but filthy rags. They are like autumn leaves that wither and fall, and our sins are swept away like the wind. And our sins sweep us away like the wind. You know, Romans, you know, Paul put it this way. Romans 3, uh, 3.23 For everyone has sinned and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. You know, the notion of what sin is, is this idea of missing the mark. You know, an archer would take aim at a target and if he missed, that, they'd describe that as a, as a sin. He missed he missed his mark. And so, according to the definition that Jesus set for us there, yeah, the mark is God, is perfection. And Paul paints it pretty clearly saying, look, we've all fallen short of that standard. So right now you might be going, all right, Chris, stop. We get it. We get it. Why all the doom and gloom? You've made it clear that none of us are good, that we're all impure, sinful people. We get it, but that's why we're here, isn't it? For most of you, and the fact is, if this is something new to you and you know, you're going, well, oh, actually, <laughs> I need a, some help to fix this. That's why we're here. That's, that's, that's the whole gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, is that, yeah, we're broken. Yeah, we've missed the mark. But thankful to the grace of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus, those sins are covered and taken care of. Now, for most of us sitting here, you're probably going, well, Chris, yeah, I get that. I've, I've read that verse out of Romans 3, that for everyone has sinned. We've all fallen short of the glorious standard. But I know the second part, if you keep reading from there, verses 24 to 26. But God in his grace has freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. Talking about Jesus. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. So for those of us that profess faith in Jesus Christ, we're going, yep, that's us. That's us. If that's not you, come see us after the service. Let me pray with you. Let me introduce you to Jesus. But the reason why I'm bringing this up today is that I started to just dwell on a few things this week and it sort of came to my mind of going, well, 
I know that I realise this. I know that I recognise my brokenness, my sinfulness. But where do other people see themselves? Why is it that other people haven't come to the same realisation? So I began to dwell on, you know, what, what, what are some of those factors that soften the heart towards the gospel? And the first step is, you know, the fact is that it's, it's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Please know that it's not, a, not, not, not us that does the saving. Men Prince have talked about this a lot. You know, we, we, we're born and raised in a very evangelistic-minded um, church. Where I was just like, no, you've got to get out there and get people saved. Get out there and get people saved. But it was presented in such a way that it was pressure put on us that if we weren't directly seeing people come to faith, that we were failing in some way. I don't want to ever put that pressure on someone because that's not the way it works. We're partnering with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is actually the first step and the, the promoter and the softener of someone's heart towards the gospel. Yes, they hear it through us. You know, Jesus commanded us, didn't he? You know, his last command to us was go into all the world and make disciples. Tell them about me. Share the good news. You know, that is our role. It's not us that actually makes people choose. It's not us that actually make people get soft to the gospel. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, a couple other verses too, if people are sort of writing any notes. Yeah, John 16, 8 says this. John chapter 16, verse 8. That when he comes, talking about the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. Now, that's his role. Holy Spirit comes into the world and not only does he come and indwell in us, and be our counsellor and our guide as believers. But it goes into the world, it goes into humanity and brings conviction of sin. An awareness of God's righteousness, an awareness of that there's a judgment pending. Another verse speaking about the Holy Spirit. Now John, another verse from John, so this is John 6, chapter 6, verse 44. He says, For no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me and at the last days I'll raise them up okay. God the Father through the work of the Holy Spirit draws people to him and I know about you I don't know your testimony but I know for me even, even though I was born and raised in the church I remember that sensation where I'd heard, heard the gospel plenty of times born and raised in the church as I said but there was just that moment where my heart was just soft towards it, where it just became real. It just, it made sense suddenly. That was the work of the Holy Spirit. And as a young teenager, I think I was about 12 or 13 when I sort of made my, I guess what I call my, my definite sort of decision point of following Christ. You know, yes, a gospel message was being presented by someone, but it was the softening of the Holy Spirit that made me go, no, now's my time. Now's my time to step up and say, yes, I want to, I want to be a follower of Jesus. So what? Our, let's talk about our role in that then. Yeah? I've taken away that, that pressure. It's not up to us to, to, to do that work. That's the Holy Spirit's. But in our approach and the way that we do present gospel, the way that, the way that we do interact with the humanity around us, you know, there's lots of strategies out there, isn't there? If you've been in the church for any length of time, there's definitely different, I guess, perspectives and avenues when it comes to, to sharing that gospel. Now, there's some that, 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 that appeal to you know, the kindness and the love of Jesus. You know, oh, Jesus loves you so much and he just wants to be your friend. He wants to be you know, intimate with you. 
You know? That's a sort of appealing to your people's need for, for love and relationship. You know, the old, good old hellfire and brimstone message. Appealing to the, the fact that, you know, do you know what's going to happen when you die? If you're going to face the judgment, where, which side are you going to be on? You know? And, you know, there's a time and place for that. And in different cultures and different settings, it's still very relevant. It appeals to that sense of, you know, going, well, what, what is going to happen after our life? Some strategies appeal to logic and reason and, and use apologetics of sort of just going, well, you know, when we look at our world, when we look, look at humanity and, and philosophy and just deep thought, you know, God actually does fit. The notion of a creator God and then the notion of God bringing reason and purpose to life just fits the way we interact as humanity. And there's some great resources around appealing to, to, to the logic of God, appealing to the, to the common sense of God, if that makes sense. <laughs> and again, to, 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 to the right people in the right setting, that, that's, that's very appropriate. You know, there's, there's, some, there's some amazing people that, that, that we call apologists that speak into you know, the, the higher thought regions, they speak into universities and that sort of thing and just present the gospel in such depth and, and logic and reason that just appeals to the intellectuals. Yeah? In that setting, it works. It's great, great methods and great, great tools available there. But the one I want to sort of have, a, I guess, a bit of a, a think about here relating to this concept of you know, what is good is appealing to that that sinfulness of us, that if we can aid the Holy Spirit and, and help people realize their brokenness, that actually, you know, all your good deeds are as filthy rags compared to the standard of God. Because I know for me, that was, that, that was a big part of it. For me, it just made sense. When I sort of came to that realization of going, well, you know, yeah, I've, I've just been one of the good kids, but that wasn't enough. Being one of the good kids didn't cut it. Because even as the good kid, I stuffed up every now and again. I went to a Christian school, I got the paddle. Only once. That was enough. Yeah, that was a good boundary for me. I went, yeah, I don't need to cross that line again. <laughs> I had friends that didn't learn that message as quickly and they've got the paddle multiple times. <laughs> the paddle, yeah, was wasn't a cane. It was an oversized um, table tennis racket, basically. That's what that's what our school had. <laughs> but yeah, you know, even though I yeah you know, I could have considered myself in that bracket of being well, I'm I'm, I'm pretty good. You know, majority of the time I listened to mum and dad. Majority of the time I did what my teachers told me. I tried to be a good friend. I wasn't mean. I wasn't like my friend who was breaking trust. But in the light of Christ, in the light of perfection, of a good God, all that was nothing. So in our society today, you know, like we've got a very self-sufficient society, don't we? When we when we talk, talk about gospel and you know the the need for Christ. A lot, a lot of people in our society, so I was going, well, I've got all that I need. 
I've got the I've got my house, I've got my income, I've got my health. You know, why do I need God in that picture? And I think if we can look for those opportunities to to define what good is, maybe that might just shine a new light in people's worlds. You know, one of the questions I sort of came to when I was putting this together is, okay, how, okay, God, if we're going to use this approach, if we're going to try and highlight the fact that we are sinful, in our, in our humanity, we are sinful and broken, how do we highlight that in people's lives without bringing condemnation? We don't want, you know, because God's not condemning people. Because co- condemnation is this notion of going, well, you're a dirty, rotten sinner and there's nothing, nothing good for you. What the Holy Spirit does is he brings conviction. Conviction is different to condemnation. Conviction is us coming to that realization of going, well, no, I am broken. I am sinful. I'll never meet that standard of perfection. And the conviction draws us and drives us towards the grace of Jesus Christ. So in our interactions with people, could I sort of go, well, okay, if I'm going to, when that opportunity comes to present, you know, maybe my story, my testimony, or, or just present an aspect of, you know, the gospel, how do I do it in a way that's going to bring a conviction, not a condemnation? Because I think what condemnation does actually brings people to, to a point where they, they might make a choice. And, and, and we see this, I guess, when Christian faith becomes a religion where it just becomes a rhetoric, when it just becomes a ritual. And repentance in that just becomes another ritual. It just goes, well, I'm just ticking that box to go, yep, I've come before God, sorry for what I've done. And they just get on with life. You know, like the... In part, I like the idea of what the Catholics adopt, where they've got their confessional, where people come, you know, Scripture does say, confess your sins to one another. And yeah, seek forgiveness, seek, seek and, and seek repentance. But the problem is, is that they've turned it into a ritual. They've turned it into just a, this religious act where they come in, send the confessional off. Yeah, forgive me, Father, for I've sinned. They list what they did for that week that was wrong, and then they go back and just do it all over again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And you need to ask yourself, don't you? You go, well, is that genuine repentance? Yeah. 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 So what is genuine repentance? I just want to wrap up on this idea and thought, yeah? Yeah, genuine repentance is just that innate awareness of our brokenness. When we realize that, when we realize that no matter what good I try... It's not going to measure up. And the fact is, obviously, the worse we get, the further we fall from that mark. And that's what God desires. And the fact is, this is where the evangelistic message has, in a sense, almost not helped at times. Is that it's gone so hard and fast. That's brought people to this point. Oh, okay, I'll just do it because I'm, I'm feeling... 
emotionally moved and scared that I'm not sure what, what's going to happen if I wake up dead tomorrow. <laughs> like it's, yeah. sorry, that probably that makes no sense at all, but you, you, get, you get what I mean. <laughs> but people haven't actually really processed it. just going, no, am I, yeah, do I really realize how great God is compared to me and that that is how much I need the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Now, the verse that sort of, I guess, really motivated me to put this thought together this week was Matthew 9, chapter 13. And what's happening in this section of Scripture is, is um, it's right after the call of Matthew. So Matthew is a tax collector. Uh, he wasn't looked upon well by the Jewish community around him. And he comes to Matthew and says, follow me. And Matthew just drops his job, says, yep, I'll come follow you. But that night, Matthew goes, hey, come celebrate in my house. So I'm going to invite all my friends. So he invites all the sinners and the other tax collectors and you know, the broken people of the society. And the Pharisees in their religiousness are going, oh, Jesus, you, you really shouldn't be around all these people. You know, they're, the, they're, the, they're the rot of society. And Jesus goes, well, a doctor doesn't come to fix sick, uh, healthy people, does he? He comes to fit uh, help sick people. And he adds with this at the end. So Matthew 9, verse 13. He says, he then added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. And he actually quotes a verse from Hosea. He says, I want you to show mercy and not offer sacrifices. And if you look at that verse in Hosea, it's Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And it's God sort of saying, look, you can sacrifice all you want. You can sacrifice all your animals to me. But if it doesn't lead to you being in love and in, in, in obedience to me, in genuine relationship with me, then what's the point? So he's sort of saying, you know, don't, don't just do it out of religious duty. Let it be real. Let it be genuine. I want you to show mercy and not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call those, not those who think they are righteous, but to those who know that they are sinners. For those who know that they are sinners. I'll tell you what, if we can assist the Holy Spirit in helping people come to that realisation, not in condemnation, not in you're a dirty, rotten, horrible person and you know, there's nothing good out there for you, if we can help people get to a point where they realize, well, in comparison to that description of good, that God alone is good and that there's no way we can meet that standard, that's a big step forward towards genuine salvation, isn't it? That's a big step forward towards genuine repentance because they are actually reflecting and realizing that, that no, I am a sinner. <laughs> I think that's where the power of personal testimony comes in. When we admit and we are honest with those around us and go, you know what? <laughs> I'm no better. Just because I've found faith doesn't mean I'm suddenly righteous and good. I've come to Christ as a broken person, just as broken as you, just as hurting as you. And if we can bring people out of that humanistic perspective of good, I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges in our current society. Our society is built on these philosophies of going, well, you know, if, it, if the good outweighs the bad, then that should be good enough. It doesn't work like that in the, in the economy of God. 
That's humanistic economy. The economy of God is, well, God is here at a standard that we can never reach. That is truly good. We can never describe ourselves as good in comparison to that light. And that is why we need salvation and the grace of Jesus Christ. And I guess you know, a bit of homework, if you want to sort of see what, it, what that genuine, genuine um, repentance looks like. Have a good slow read of Psalm 51. Yeah, I'm seeing a few heads nod. Yeah? If you're aware of Psalm 51, it's the psalm that David wrote when he was cornered by the prophet Nathan after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed her, killed her husband. But what that psalm is, it's this heart cry of someone in genuine repentance going, God, I messed up. God, I am broken. I am filthy with sin. But this is even prior to Jesus. When you read through it, David had just such revelation of the heart of God that he realized that salvation was available in God. That he wasn't condemned, that he was convicted, that drew him closer to God. That drew him into a better relationship with God. And when you look at the history of David, that was actually quite a turning point in his life and in his, his ruling as a king. He made some much better decisions after that point because he just came to some better realizations of who he was in the sight of God. He became a better king because of it. Doesn't justify what happened <laughs> at all. But it got him to a point of genuine repentance, which got him into a much better relationship with God. So in answer to your question, Chris, I, I didn't come with lots of answers of, you know, how do we bring people to that point? But I guess in our looking for those opportunities, presenting gospel, I don't know about you, but I've heard that I've heard that said so many times. And I, I probably haven't combated it as quickly and as effectively as I could have. But you know, people say, "Oh well, no, I'm doing all right. I'm, I'm a pretty good person." Amen. I don't need to preach. I'll just let you guys just talk it through, and we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what church is, isn't it? Backing each other up, being there for each other. Let me pray. Well, God, I thank you for just the, humil the humility and the, the forgiveness that we find in your word. That when we truly do reflect on ourselves and reflect on humanity, Lord God, we do realize our brokenness and the, the distance we, we, we can have from you. But thankfully, due to your son and the, the, the gift of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, that we can be intimate, that we can be close. That you draw us in and you draw us so near, Lord God. We praise you and we give you thanks. And Lord God, in our interactions with others, Lord God, I pray. I pray that you do give us those keys. That in, in each of those opportunities, Lord God, there's just unique questions to be asked or unique statements to be made or unique actions, Lord God, that we are to do. Give us that boldness and that, that confidence to follow your leading in that. But Lord God, that as we just make the most of those opportunities to share the good news of Jesus, 
Lord God, you continue your work, that you continue to soften hearts because we know that you do. You haven't finished your work because our work hasn't finished. So God, let us just find that confidence in you. Let us find that hope in you. And also that energy, Lord God, in you. Let us not tire in the work of the kingdom. In your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen.